Welcome to Bible Over Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice with Verka, and I've got Gumby. Hola. And I've got Theo. Hello. And I've got Ryan Rose. Hello. I've got Zachariah. Hey. And we have Dr. David Fowl. Hello. <laughs> We'll be going over evidence for the Exodus tonight, and possibly Egyptian beer. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But we're going to be starting our night with nothing other than Angel's Envy. So, this has been one of my favorite bourbons, uh, especially in its rye. Um, This kind of cool. So it says, there are a lot of people who have recently discovered the joys of bourbon and whiskey, and there are also many older fans who know their whiskeys. And so, this goes on and on. I really encourage you, I'm not going to read all this right now, because it has a, a deep, staunch history on this on its website. Um, and they do have two main kinds of bourbon. They have their main bourbon, made from the, the standard mash, and then they also have their, their rye. And their rye is my favorite. Cheers. <laughs> and I've been told Cheers, that Dr. Uh, Dr. David Falk has his own. Well, I'm drinking Copper Pot tonight. Uh, I uh, picked up a pension for, uh, say, purest forms of whiskey when I uh, lived in England. So for me, if it hasn't been done in a copper pot still, well, you know, just <laughs> just isn't quite the same. Okay. I don't, awesome. I don't go for these refract, refractory type still uh, whiskeys. All right. I will have to give that a shot and Excellent we'll have to, to uh, we'll have to feature it on the uh, podcast in a future episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for our listeners, Dr. Falk, could you please tell us who you are, what your background is and uh, why you are so doggone interesting? Okay. Well, uh, I am a Egyptologist. I'm also a biblical scholar. Uh, my specialization is the interconnections between ancient Egypt and the Bible. I have uh, four graduate degrees, and I earned my PhD at the University of Liverpool. Most recently, I am known for uh, my uh, book, The Ark of the Covenant in its Ancient Egyptian Context and Illustrated Journey. Very cool. Where can people find the book? Uh, Amazon, ChristianBook.com. Most major booksellers are uh, are selling it right now. Very cool. That sounds incredibly interesting. In fact, I've been told that you may or may not have some disputes with certain views of uh, the Exodus and its dates. So, not to cut too quickly, but... Me capping me early, huh? <laughs> you haven't get, gotten past the first round and you're already throwing me into it. <laughs> so before we get too deep, um, do you cover any of this in your book? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, I do. Uh, at the insistence of my publisher, my publisher basically gave me a choice when I, when I first wrote this book, which was... Um, they didn't want me to include any of the dates of kings in the book. It's like, like none of the names of the kings of the evidence that I was presenting. 
well, if you're doing a book on, on Egyptology, you have to include the names of the Kings. Yeah. So I, I said, you know, that's not acceptable. I have to be able to, to, to date the material that I'm presenting. And they said, Oh, okay. We will allow that. But then you'll have to explain uh, your view on the date of the Exodus as well. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> You're actually asking me to do this? Because <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, publishers don't want you to do this because it tends to drive away certain readerships. Okay. But, you know, it's like, uh, okay, I was more than happy to do that. So I fleshed out my view in the first chapter of the book. Very cool. I actually asked you not to do that. That is fascinating. <laughs> That's awesome. So what prompted you, just out of curiosity, going into your background, what prompted you to get a PhD in Egyptology and uh, pursue scholarship in biblical studies? Well, what prompted me to do it was the fact that um, I've always loved Egypt. You know, as a, as a, as a kid, you know, I grew up uh, watching those Saturday morning specials on King Tut. <laughs> you know, so that, that always sort of, you know, held something for me. And then, you know, I worked a little while in, um, as a computer systems analyst, and then I went back to graduate school and it was at graduate school that I, um, ran into James Hoffmeyer, who's a famous Egyptologist and Bible scholar himself. And it was after that was a done deal. It was just like, okay, I found my reason for coming here. And I just sort of kept going. Nice. And uh, it was just, just, I just loved it ever since. So what you're saying is you're a big fan of ancient aliens. Of what? <laughs> ancient aliens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a joke. It's I'm okay. I'm a science fiction fan. <laughs> I wouldn't press it as far as ancient aliens. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's all true. It's all true. I saw it online. <laughs> okay, well, that's... It's not aliens, but it's aliens. <laughs> <laughs> My hair's not right. So, <laughs> that's, so that's really cool. Um, now, I know that I believe Zechariah had a couple of questions he wanted to dive into. Probably once we've gotten through major things. It's like not as related to uh, the main issue, just like... Something like, okay, we have we have an Egyptologist here. Uh, I want to ask this question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Same here. Same here. He's, the, he's a captive victim. We're going to now torture him. <laughs> <laughs> it's the slow drip. It's the slow yeah, it's drip. The slow drip. <laughs> Waterboarding. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm numbing myself to we the uh, pain with uh, alcohols here. <laughs> <laughs> Neither confirm nor deny waterboarding on this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So what was the first revelation that hit you once you started diving into those subjects? What do you mean revelation? Well, like, you know, you're you're getting into Egyptology and mm -hmm. you're you're going into into ancient biblical context. So, what's the first thing that kind of hits you when you're like, "Oh, wow, that that's that's awesome! Like, that's interesting." You know, it, okay. the, the big shocker. Well, well, I did my PhD uh, thesis on uh, ritual processional furniture. Okay, <laughs> and it's a very conventional PhD thesis. The first revelation that really sort of struck me was seeing the relief at Luxor Temple. 
and seeing these two angelic beings for on one of the sacred barks with their wings stretched out over the space where the God was. Oh, wow. As like, oh my gosh, this is like exactly like the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Exactly. Oh. You know, that is even awesome. facing each other. They're facing each other. The wings are spread out. And right in the middle between the wings, you see the icon for the, the sun god. It's just, and it, it just wow. Huh. So okay. Regarding that. Yeah. Um, because the word for like the, 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 the throne guardians on, on the Ark is cherubim, right? Mm-hmm. And those are more uh, Mesopotamian throne guardians. Would you think that the throne guardians in their Egyptological context would be something more like a sphinx or a griffin? No. Um, okay. We, we, we find a lot of examples of these. I mean, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's not even uh, – you, you do find sphinx and, you know, but you also find these all over the place. I mean, there's hundreds of examples of them. Okay. You know, on the sarcophagus of, of King Tut, you have four winged goddesses, one at each corner, with their wings stretched out to surround the sarcophagus. Okay. You see this on the Canopic uh, shrine, where the where the goddesses have their arms stretched out, surrounding the um, the Canopic shrine. They're, they're everywhere. They're really everywhere. So these and are be, sorry. So are these more just conventional uh, winged humanoids? They are. It, it depends on the orientation. They started out as a vulture goddess. Okay, as a vulture goddess. And the idea comes out of ancient uh, Egyptian mythology where the goddess, the vulture goddess, was kind of seen as a motherly protective figure. Yep. So it would stretch its arms around whatever it was protecting. And it became one of the two symbols of holiness in ancient Egypt. The other symbol being the Uraeus, which is a cobra goddess. Oh, wow. So that's interesting because, like... I'm used to like getting myself out of the out of the headspace that angels are just like winged humanoids, right? And, <laughs> and now I plop you right have, back into it. <laughs> have we gone full circle? <laughs> well, it, it, it all depends on the orientation of the wings. When you, I mean, and really, the orientation of the wings does seem to affect what the what the um, body of the creature was per- portrayed as. Okay, if it's a forward stretching arms it's either going to be a vulture or a humanoid. If it's back swept, it's going to be a lion or a bull. Hmm. So it really depends on what the orientation of the wings are going to be. And that seems to really determine what's being portrayed. And as I say, we've got hundreds of iconographic examples. That's fascinating. What's on the ark itself? What, what, what's the Hebrew uh, counterpart then. Well, the Hebrew counterpart basically is is a forward swept wing. It's a forward swept wing. The aim, the the cherubim on the ark are facing each other, so they're they're looking into that center, uh, on top of the uh, the mercy seat. So I would, uh, from just from the comparative iconography, I would have to say that they were anthropoid. Hmm. All right, so they're likely. Uh, there's a high likelihood of uh, winged female humanoids. Very high likelihood. 
Very high likelihood. In fact, in fact, I, I would be very, very doubtful to see any other example, any other uh, possibility here. This is just such, it's such a repertoire. It's, it's such an established repertoire of the visual language that you, you would doubt if it was anything else. Wow. That's definitely a game changer on some level then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think the audience here might be familiar with like Dr. Heiser's work uh, and the typical parsing that some people make between the beings in Isaiah 14 and the beings in Ezekiel 28 and might be trying to roll it back to Genesis 3. And this is exciting to hear you be able to parse this a little bit better for us so that mm-hmm. the listener yep. can understand. We also have to realize too that that these symbols are are not fixed in time; they change. Yeah. Okay. That's that's by by the time of Isaiah, you know, five hundred years has passed. Hmm. The symbols themselves are starting to change. You know, they're they're starting to take on new attributes, like multiple faces. You know that sort of thing. You know, multiple wings. There's 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 these these are not static symbols. But when we're talking about, say, the late Bronze Age, you know, uh, the 13th um, to, say, 15th century BC, you know, it also has a very uh, established repertoire that's fixed in time. Uh, Can we say that there's any kind of interdimensionality kind of in view so that as the priest moves from the outside in the altar into the holy place, and then on that one day, Yom Kippur into the Holy of Holies, the idea of this uh, being being an anthropoid or you know, does that have any connections to uh, moving from our realm into the realm of the heavenly to some extent, or well, have any theosis behind it? Oh, there's definitely some theosis behind it. Uh, the whole say uh, cherubim are there to establish sacred space. You know, this is why on the tabernacle, you have the cherubim, not just on the Ark of the Covenant. They're also on the veil. They're also on the tent, on the perimeter of the tabernacle. Each set of cherubim is establishing a different kind of holy space. So what you have here is layered uh, layers of holy space. This is how you get the Holy of Holies. Mm. Is iconographic layer upon layer upon layer of holiness. Wow. You know, even when Solomon builds his temple, you know, you have, you have the ark in the center, you have a veil around it, which presumably also have cherubim, but you also had within the, the, the holy place of the temple, two massive cherubim that, that, that sort of over there, whose wings oversaw all of that. Hmm. It's 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 iconographic intensification, where one set of icons demarks ever increasingly holiness. So cherubim onions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> so what you're saying For is parfaits. <laughs> so yeah, I get, it's kind of interesting. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no no no. Or no. likes onions. Yeah. <laughs> So I was going to say, so iconography is like ogres. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> it's very Shrek. <laughs> well, you kind of start out the outside with the two standing stones or standing pillars. 
Yes. And you start from the least holy space. You actually start from outside that. You start with profane space. Profane space is outside. And then you move into one layer of holiness, then into another layer of holiness within that. And then finally to the Ark of the Covenant within that. Hmm. And you're crossing boundaries that you're, you're, yeah. you're moving from the two the two pillars, which we don't have a whole lot of information about necessarily, mm-hmm. at least in the biblical account. But yeah. they're more plain. They're more, you know, they're less. And then you get inside with the two cherubim. That's very detailed. So yes, you're moving. You're moving closer and closer into that. And you're yeah. you're making an ascension. Yeah. And the priesters, the priesters becoming otherworldly. So sorry, I'm yes. getting into my discussion. No, no, no. Now, that's that's anyway. that's good. That's good. It, it, does that uh, is that also the same with the layers of the people? Because inside you have the, of course, the purified priest. Then outside mm-hmm. of that you have the devout followers, and then outside of that you have you know the the foreigners, right? The, yes. the people who are not Jewish, right? So yes. so that's also the layers of people as well as the iconography. Then yes. Yes, you do have you do have separation of people as well, and who is qualified to pass through the various um, layers of holiness. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, right. It's very intense. (laughs) It's very intense. Yeah, you're starting. You're talking about the Ark of the Covenant being the most holy place in the earth, and Mm -hmm. then of course the holy ground of the Tabernacle Temple grounds, and then Jerusalem itself, uh, and then the people of Israel. You know, so you're 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 moving across these gradients from the mm-hmm. wilderness outside into you know God's very presence, which is yeah. an ascension to heaven. And we find this dimensionality outside. happening all through, say, the Hebrew scriptures. You know, one of the things about the Hebrew scriptures is you know we think about often think about you know say the kosher laws being clean and unclean, but that's really the two middle classifications of that. There's actually two other classifications. You know, more beyond clean is holy. Those are things that are, say, holy, but, you know, something that may be clean may be inappropriate for something that is holy. Hmm. Just because it's clean doesn't mean it's holy. Fascinating. Okay? Like, for example, um, you know, oxen are, are, are a clean animal. You can eat them. You are not allowed to use them as a, say, as for example, a oxen that is pulled a load. You cannot use it as a temple sacrifice. You can eat honey. Honey is clean, but it is not holy. You cannot use it as a, as a temple sacrifice. On the other extreme, you can have something that's unclean or abnormal, but then you also have beyond that what's, what the Hebrews call toevo or abomination. So there's actually four classifications in 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 Hebrew culture. Hmm. So this all, you have this. Oh, go on. Go ahead, Theo. I just said this ties in what we discussed before when Ryan was here about mythology, and you know we've had uh, different people like George on the podcast who don't understand when you're trafficking in this ancient culture or language. And you're trying to parse it through 21st century. You're going to make mistakes, big time. Because oh, yeah. you're saying, "I don't, I don't understand yeah. this." Well, you, you can't because it's a text from thousands of years ago. And if you go back and listen to the episode on on mythology, 
this is what they're trafficking in. And you're trying to explain something in the unseen realm to, uh, you know, that story that we talked about. You're trying to encapsulate that in a story. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't take it as a story and you're trying to, well, you have a, your recent podcast, or excuse me, your, your recent YouTube channel uh, release on being reading the Bible literally, you know. So if you go to David Falk, Ancient Evil in the Bible, he's got lots of videos there, but his most recent one on, on reading it literally. You have to traffic in their language, in their mythos, and what they're trying to express in the story. If you're trying to take it from a 21st century mindset and say, well, this is all hogwash, you know, well, you know. Or, or incomprehensible. Out. Or incomprehensible. Or, or overwhelming. So it, it takes, yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It just be, well, that's know, what an evangelical it, like me <laughs> it could just seem overwhelming. <laughs> even even Ed was on the like Edward was on the last one, right? And he was yeah. so overwhelmed at, at the mythology, and so that's what they're trying to do. They want to overwhelm you because we're talking about the presence of Yahweh, right? Yeah. You know, it yeah, should yeah, be yeah. overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that piece. I mean. I wasn't even referring to that. I mean, overwhelming in the sense from a historical standpoint, you know, when I, when I think, and, and I wanted to ask at the beginning, uh, Dr. Falk, kind of your background in terms of what your faith, I don't know if you were Catholic growing up or. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Oh, uh, that's, I think it's because of the speakers over there. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay. Okay. I wanted to ask this question kind of at the beginning, but I wasn't sure quite your background in terms of, uh, you know, what your upbringing was, if you were, I don't know, evangelical uh, I was or raised, Catholic or none of that. Or, I was raised in a Christian home. Okay. I generally do not comment on my particular denomination. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. But uh, that's enough. because I don't want to make it a point of divisiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I am of an evangelical persuasion. Okay. I do consider myself an evangelical Christian. Okay. Yeah. I won't hold that yeah. against you. I am too. <laughs> Much. And hence why we're drinking whiskey, you and I. <laughs> but no, that, that makes me want to ask. Real Christians drink whiskey. <laughs> That's right. right? The, the Orthodox. Uh, it, it makes me want to ask, you know, like how much of the Hebrew scripture and the Israelites of that influence was just Egyptian influenced, you know, uh, when you when you go back and study just the Egyptian uh, work and all your work that you've done, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes me want to ask, like, how much of the Israelites' uh, culture and the Hebrew culture was actually their own and how much was Egyptian and how much we should lean more towards, you know, and, and in terms of how that also affected your faith growing up. Okay. Uh, well— I didn't get into Egyptology until I was in my 30s already. Okay. okay. So it, it didn't have a formative process on my faith. Mm-hmm. But when I did start studying it, it ended up strengthening it. Oh, wow. It really ended up, say, confirming that, mm. hey, this is something that has a real basis in ancient history. Yeah. This Ooh. is real. This isn't stories. Mm-hmm. You know, this based. isn't fiction based. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that's happened in time and space. Yeah. And when we look at, say, Egypt and the Bible, we have to understand that Egypt is the most influential foreign country to the Israelites. 
far more influential than Babylon, far more influential than Assyria. It is mentioned over 500 times in the Bible. Hmm. It is the single event that defines Israel. Hmm. There are three great events in the Bible. The crucifixion and resurrection, the exodus, and the giving of the law. Two of those three are in reference to Egypt. Oh, my. That's true. And even the life of Jesus is touched by Egypt. Yeah, of course. Because he, ha- as a child, has to flee to Egypt. Right. Okay? Egypt is all sprinkled through the Bible. There is not a nation that, that, that comes even close to having the influence that Egypt has. The Israelites lived in Egypt for at least 350 years. At least 350 years. Or as you say, I should say no more than 350 years, sorry. No more than 350 years. So they were there for a good couple centuries at least. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. One of the reasons so, why I uh, reached out to Dr. Falk was because we're talking about evangelicals and, and understanding the Bible literally. And so we had a you know previous podcast talking about evidence about uh, the Exodus or mm, uh, things patterns. you know discussed. And it was brought up patterns of evidence and oh dear, you know, I know this is this is why I wanted you to come because evangelicals think that they have to come up with some wild theory that every scholar on the planet is so dumb they don't know that we have to just like change calendars by three centuries to 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 prove something and say you know like Adam and Eve spoke Hebrew in the Bible you know Uh, I don't know about it makes no sense at all. It doesn't. It makes no sense at all. That that whole chronology just can't even support itself. Yeah. 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 So okay. I wanted I wanted you to come on here and and be able to explain to our audience better. We don't have to stand on some wild theory. We can actually traffic in uh, in academic information yeah. mm-hmm. and come across with something that actually works. It's very comprehensive. You know, he's got Dr. Falk, if you go to his channel, he's got uh, scads of videos he's still doing on evidence for Exodus. Oh yeah, I will never yeah. be done though. So it's just, <laughs> right. I'm not running out of evidence anytime soon. <laughs> and, and, and to preface to preface that, our audience is very broad. It's it it, uh, mm-hmm. it ranges from Catholics to evangelicals to uh, even agnostics, uh, Islamic. So we're a very interfaith uh, podcast. So you're reaching cool. you're reaching a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, even better. Right. Exactly. So so yeah. what, what's up with what's what's up with Exodus? <laughs> What's up with yeah. Exodus? Well, what do you want to know about the Exodus? Because it's that's a huge topic. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, let me just be straight up here. The patterns of evidence um, uh, movies are completely bereft of good scholarship. Ouch. You know, they're wow. just you're just it's um, every one of those movies, and I've seen them all, um, is absolutely terrible from a scholarly point of view. That's absolutely a- atrocious. That's a mic drop. Whenever somebody says bereft, you just yeah, don't argue. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, oh, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing. 
Well, I've had issues with patterns of evidence, but for other reasons, but. Well, I mean, even the whole structure of the films where it says presents you, it it presents the audience with a dichotomy, you know, a choice, a false dichotomy. Yeah. You know, every time it's, well, you, you, you either choose pattern of evidence or an absence of evidence. Yeah. That's a false choice. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You either believe in the, um, the, um, the the uh, crossing uh the, the uh, gulf of aqaba or you're a a nasty atheist oh. who tells the bible ouch you know, those are the choices you're being presented with yeah or an anti that's evangelicalism they they always paint it like that <laughs> the black and the white and the they're like and the we're white. right we're right we're i mean we're right i mean we're you know and then you, everything else is wrong you know it's like the yeah. someone recently told me the definition of a cult is when you believe everyone else is a cult you're in a cult so, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> so, oh, so gosh. you know so if if you believe everybody else is wrong then maybe you're wrong you know so mm-hmm. i wanted dr falk to come and provide the balance because you get the wrong picture sometimes you know yeah. and so yeah. here's an actual egyptologist to come in here and say, no, this is not the best foot forward. This is yeah. not the best way to describe. You want, there's actual evidence for oh, yeah. Exodus. There's actual scholarship that you don't have to go against and say, everybody else is wrong except my view or go to the highway because you're going to burn in hell because I'm going to be evangelical. No, 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 we yeah. don't need that. We actually need the traffic and what makes sense. There are evangelical Egyptologists. Mm-hmm. There are evangelical biblical scholars who are very, very competent, and their views are not really represented. The mainstream of evangelical scholarship is not being represented by these movies. Hmm. The, well, the, the theory is so far out there. The theory is, is so far is, out there. It is. It's, it's, it's out in left field. It's, it's totally out in left field. The problem is, though, that um, – Evangelical scholarship has been really, really terrible about bringing those that scholarship down to, say, the laity. It's been absolutely terrible about this. Hmm. And, and some of it is just the way that academics work, which is they don't like to engage people who don't have the same sort of educational credentials. Because as, as, as a, a PhD holder, you are um, enculturated into speaking in a certain way, uh, dialoguing in a certain way, and it can be very uncomfortable to try to engage people who are not, say, enculturated with those rules. Yeah. Well, At the I same time, sorry? Uh, I think that even stretches further to those who have dealt with in scholarship in, enough, it's easy to sort of fall into those habits where you're like almost speaking a different language. Oh, it is. It is. There is there is a different language there, too. You know, there's also say, like, for example, I mean, getting just to the rules, you know, if you say present some data, you know, there's sort of a benefit of the doubt that that data exists, you know, and there's a supposed to be a good um, good faith attempt to try to engage that data. Whereas if you're dealing with someone who doesn't know those rules, they might just say, well, you know, I don't know about uh, I don't know about any of that data. I don't think that data exists. You have to prove to me that it, that data exists. Hmm. Or they'll they'll do the say the gish dash. You know, what about this? 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 <laughs> and and and, you, and and it gets into a mode where it can be really really frustrating to engage that. Well, and it imagine. does take a special individual to try to be able to to cope with that. Yeah. Well, you're pulling the rug out from under us. You know. 
And that's scary. <laughs> Very. Sweet. Okay, so before we proceed, a word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com. Yeah. <laughs> but if you if you go to if you go to David Falk's channel, he does a very good job at this, though. That's why yeah. I wanted the audience to be introduced to him because it's remarkable how he is able to uh, bridge that gap mm -hmm. with his videos. Many of them are not very long. So it's not terribly, uh, you know, that you have to spend hours watching this, uh, unless you want the epic battle, <laughs> the epic the popcorn, the popcorn battle, <laughs> which which we love David Falk to talk about tonight. To Theo's. Well, here's the thing: most of my 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 general video formats are tends to try to to, to keep videos usually under twenty minutes. Wow. I don't try to cover everything. I just try to cover the most salient points. Mm in the most um, 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 clear way possible. Yeah, digestible. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. digestible, clear, and short. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if I leave uh, holes in that, great, fantastic. That, that allows people to have a debate in the comments section. Yeah. And then we can, in the comments section, really get sort of into the brass tacks, the data, the questions. And that also increases... Um, viewer engagement. Because then people are saying, hey, wait, you missed this. It's like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this in, in the comments and we'll, we'll discuss this. Yeah. So it, it's not a disadvantage not to cover everything. You just cover a few points, you get it done clearly, and then you get out. You don't drag it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. I've I've seen I've seen those conversations in the comments and man, you've got to have some mental fortitude to deal with a lot of people there. <laughs> As I said, a special kind of person. Yep. And lots of whiskey. <laughs> yes. Here, here. Don't forget the popcorn. To, oh yeah, can't have forget the popcorn. To uh to, to uh, Theo's point though, your YouTube page is so chock full of information. I went through like Oh, probably eight videos today. My mind was numb because of all the facts that were just dropping one after another, after another, after another. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was, it's astounding. Just the amount of facts that you were just littered with, and after, and you're just yeah. like, I have to stop because I have to parse all of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like that. Um, oh, that animation. Um, oh, Rick and Morty. You know where the ancient alien overlord comes, and he goes. You know, uh, you know, I want to die a warrior's death. You know, you know, shoot me. And then you know, Morty asks, "Well, isn't there? It's it's must so comforting to have evidence for your faith." He goes, "Evidence? What evidence?" And then he <laughs> runs. He he gets hit by a car, and he and you know he gets dragged down into to the underworld. And Morty goes, "There's lots of evidence." He said, "There's no evidence. There's lots of evidence." <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we're kind of dealing with with the Exodus. Is, there's lots of evidence. <laughs> I can't stop making videos about this because I'm, I'm, I've got so much on my plate. I've, I've got 
even even just on the series of uh, evidence for the Exodus, you know, I think I've done nine of them so far. I've still got another at least four or five to go before I've even covered just the basics. Wow. You know, it's it's I'm I'm swamped with it. It's like <laughs> there's lots of evidence. So before we stray too far away from the patterns of evidence documentary, um, and other than the soundtrack for it, which I really liked, I thought the soundtrack was good. <laughs> other than that, was there anything you felt that they got right or they were pretty darn close? Um, patterns of evidence got nothing right. Oh, wow. That they was got such a, nothing right. That was such a big deal here, Aaron. Do you remember going to the theaters or did we watch it here? I can't remember. I, when oh, I saw it, I it was, was slinking in my seat. It was, I was just sinking, going, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah we, went, we went to the theater to see it because it was a limited release. Yeah, I remember the people were buzzing. This is it. This is actual proof. You know, there's no denying it. This. Uh, yeah. People are going to be converted. They got almost nothing right. Yeah. This is yeah. what happens in evangelicalism in, in America. We keep doing this, you know. Yeah. Oh, over and, and over. And this is the problem. You know, this is how we met Dr. Fuck from the Sentinel community is, is IP is a famous YouTuber and he did a video on the date of Exodus and he thought he had all this scholarship and he did a phenomenal job. His beautifully made video over the top. He does. And someone asked Dr. Fuck to review it and he got his popcorn out and said, okay, let's check this out. And and that guy's taking the video down and is remaking a new video because he didn't consider the actual evidence. And so when you have non-scholars that sift through scholars and then say, this is, you know, whatever, and they're wrong, they're off. So then this is why I wanted the corrective to bring Dr. Falk back on. And, and I think Zachariah wants to ask you about this epic uh, popcorn battle that oh, night. But yeah, anyway. what, what's the, give us the drama. I'm, I'm here. Okay, I'm here's, here's the drama. About, I mean, uh, IP had been doing, you know, uh, crowdfunding for the for the Exodus video for some time prior to his release. So four oh. months before he actually released it, I started getting um, um, emails from my own subscribers saying, "Hey, do you know? Are you involved in this production?" I said, "No, no, I'm not in, involved in it in any way." And I said, "I don't even know anything about it." Now I had heard um, in a radio interview that he gave a podcast. I guess a podcast interview he gave where he had already been praising, say, Patterns of Evidence and uh, Douglas Petrovich. And I thought, oh, my gosh, these are two red flags right here. You know, this this sounds like this can't end well. So I did reach out to to uh, IP a couple times, and he missed those because he's very busy. He's got a lot of users. And, you know, my 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 attempts to reach out, you know, didn't didn't connect. And then so the video came out. I was at work. It was a long day. I mean, I was I was just I was out, you know, hitting the streets of Vancouver for just, you know, hours and hours. And I was just exhausted, absolutely exhausted. Mm. But, you know, I my 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 email box was being flooded. It's like, OK, I've got to do something. i got to do something. So I came home that night. The night it was released. Uh, all day. So I made myself a bowl of popcorn. <laughs> made myself a bowl of popcorn. And the iced tea. And the iced tea. And I just sat there and I watched it and I reacted to it without having seen it first. So it was really, it was that was really my my first viewing of it was 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 during that that taping. 
Mm. And, um, you know, it's just like, okay. A day later, I had edited the video and posted it at that point. And then it was just like, it, then it happened. <laughs> and you became like this internet rock star sensation. Because everybody's uh, like, yes. I became infamous. I was going to say, then it hit the fan, the, you know. <laughs> nice. Just real quick, you mentioned Petrovich. I believe you studied where he studied. And have you I studied, I, I was in the same classes as him. Yeah. So this, this is I, what I'm getting at. You're sitting in the same class as this guy yep. and what you're getting and what he's getting. It doesn't make sense. It, yep. You've debated him, right? Is that, available him. On, is that available on YouTube somewhere? Uh, no, it's not. It's not available on YouTube. Okay. Um, it, uh, there are recordings that were made of the papers, but not the actual questions. Okay. So here you have two people studying in the same classroom and see mm -hmm. how they come with entirely different things. And, you know, I, I know Crew, uh, I met him when we were doing Missler stuff together, you know, and that's Bob Cornuke now, you know, which <laughs> mm -hmm. is, you've been fucking laugh about that. Yep. You know, <laughs> even Junko's got to come up with Adam and you speak Hebrew in the garden, you know, they got to come up with all these wild theories that are like yep. totally out there. And it just is so stupid. Theo, and, you're beating us you up, know, Theo. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I used to be in that number. I used to be in that number, and I got out by going to the Look, academy and getting my PhD. We, so we were ahead. all there once upon a time. Yeah, yeah. You know, yes. I remember, you know, before I went and did my graduate degrees, you know, being sucked in by Ron Wyatt. Mm. You know, when Ron Wyatt first came out, it sounded really good. You know, he had found Noah's Ark. He had suggested this real, you know, you know, amazing narrative where, say, the blood of Jesus Christ dipped on, uh, dripped on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, redeeming mankind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a great story. It really was. And yeah, then you I start relate. looking into it and finding out none of it's true. Okay, I think we can all admit. You've seen the Ark, right? It's in Kentucky with that whiskey, right? <laughs> oh, wow. I knew that was going to come oh. up. Listen, I took a tour there, buddy. <laughs> I it's true, though. We can all agree that, yes, evangelicals are prone to being a bit naive in that sense and falling for things one after another, including the return of Christ, right? I don't know how many of those mm -hmm. we've had. Uh, but let me ask you this. Let me play devil's advocate a bit with patterns of evidence. Surely these people had done some type of research, and these are not uneducated people who put this together. Okay. Uh, these are not uneducated people that – Put this together. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let me, to get to my question, like, why then? Why wouldn't they consult people like you or other authorities that had more specific research that would validate history and validate things in, in a more contextual way than just throw out something that would be more divisive in the end? Why? Okay. <laughs> I will tell you exactly why. There is an ideology behind the patterns of evidence films. This is what I want to get at. Get it, dude. Okay. If you look at the production crew of who produced mm -hmm. the patterns of evidence films, okay, the actual content consultants, okay, you have both uh, those who are named, accredited, and the uncredited, okay? You have, for example, Titus Kennedy, Okay. Now, who's Titus Kennedy? He is affiliated with Associates for Biblical Research. Okay. This is an organization that promotes two things. 
It promotes an early date of the Exodus and it promotes a young earth creation, Mm. American young earth creation. Mm. Okay. One of the film editors on the original patterns of evidence film was Scott Stripling. Okay. He's also a big wig at, uh, at ABR. Okay. What the purpose of the patterns of evidence films was is to move its audience to a view of the Exodus that accepts a early Exodus date with Amenhotep II as Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, the whole reason they had David Roll on the first one and then discarded him after, I mean, they basically threw him away after because he'd served his purpose, which was to doubt conventional chronology. If you doubt conventional chronology, then you can move evidence wherever you want and make whatever pattern you wish. Gotcha. Yeah. Then in the third film, they divorce geography from history. And that's why they get Glenn Fritz. Now, Glenn Fritz is also of that ilk. Mm. If you don't mind me using the word ilk, but he's of that persuasion. Yeah. yeah. He's an early Exodus holder. He's also a young earth creationist. So what's happening is you're getting these people who are moving the needle Mm -hmm. to an ahistorical, ageographical, pattern of evidence. And once you do that, you can present anything you want as, as say the narrative you want to present. And ultimately it undermines the faith. Yeah. Geography is associated with history. It's tied to history. Like for example, uh, let's say you're doing a genealogy, a family tree. Okay. The first thing a genealogist is going to tell you is it's not enough to know the names of your ancestors. You also got to know where they lived. Hmm. You got to know where they lived because place is associated tied to history. If you take away the, 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 the geography where they lived, you can move your family tree all around. Hmm. There's nothing to tie it down. Wow. It's so uh, what, what is the benefit of uh, switching up the geography and chronology of oh. Exodus? Okay. Let me, let me, let me put it in exactly. If you take away the fact that Migdol is not a fortress on the north road of the Sinai, the road of Horus, that that Egyptian military uh, road in the north, in the northwest of the Sinai Peninsula, okay, you take it away from that, you no longer have to um, say that it was originally built by Seti I. You can locate it now anywhere. And what Glenn Fritz does is he locates it at a mountain hmm. across from the near the Nui, but crossing at um, on the Gulf of Aqaba. He calls that Migdol. See, hmm. see, you don't have to tie it to history anymore. Okay. Whereas if it's that fortress up that the Egyptians identify in all their records, which they have numerous accounts of this, then you have to admit that the fortress was originally built by Seti the first. Seti the first is the father of Ramses the second. Okay. This has a chronological connection in the Bible because the Bible mentions Migdol. Uh, interesting. It's, it's like we so wanna... you're, you're basically moving all the scholarship off the table and yeah. presenting your own view that cannot that yeah. no scholarship can attack, and then you stand there as Superman saying, "See, this is what." Christians should believe, and it's all a lie. You're not actually engaging scholarship. 
you're you're not yeah. actually going against you know you know like yeah, the the true champions. You're not actually engaging any conversation. You're just removing everybody off the table and making your own thing. Yeah. It's make believe. Yeah. And, so, and, and we're being ignored because of it. Yeah, to, to kind of, hmm. so, so our audience kind of goes knows where we're going with this. It's kind of like saying, hey, I'm Czech. And what you don't understand is that Czech people actually started over in Greece, and they were actually Spartans. <laughs> so so what, what is the broader ideological reason for this? Why do we need... Uh, to move around Ramses and say okay. and the date of the Exodus. What okay. who who benefits and how? There is an ideological war going on here. Basically, the date of the Exodus has become a shibboleth test within, say, American fundamentalism. Hmm. Okay. Ouch. The idea is if you are reading 1 Kings 6:1, the 480th year there as a literal 480 years. The idea is if you read that text literally, you'll read every other text literally. Mm. It's kind of the it's kind of the um, Old Testament equivalent of reading the book of Revelation literally. Wait, it's so- an ideological test. Now they have to change a dozen verses and read those verses non-literally to make their early date work. But they don't, they don't, they don't see that. They don't, they don't, they don't acknowledge that. Because that'd be uncomfortable. Interesting. But they've turned it into a shibboleth test, an ideology test. And all it really does is just cast a lot of doubt and a lot of uh, a lot of skepticism in there. Yeah, well, we chase is, our own tails. We, yeah. We've cut off our own feet by then, really. I mean, it's, there's no pillars left. No, no. It's, it, it shows just a big cloud of dishonesty. And it really, it, it makes all Christians look bad. Yeah, it's not a good look. No, not at all. It's not so, a good look. So what what is the deal with this this passage? Because I'm not familiar with this area. I could okay. I could tell you I I know why I shouldn't go into Revelation read literally, but what <laughs> what is up with the hey, really? using- what's 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 up with first Kings six King Sisk one? Okay. Yes. It's a temple dedication inscription. It's essentially what it is. Now we find these these temple dedication inscriptions all across the ancient Near East. You know, and they have a common pattern. They're, 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 they're actually very formulaic, which is how we know that this is a temple dedication inscription. Oh, sweet. It's usually with the rededication or the dedication of a temple. It's tied to an ancient historical event. And the number of years given is, is a numeral, number has a numerological or idiomatic significance. Okay. 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 Now, in all the examples that we have from the ancient Near East, none of them given a precise number of years. And that's very interesting right there. Like, for example, probably the most interesting one is the rededication of the temple of Seth at Avaris. You know, it's 50 years out. You know, by any estimation, it's 50 years out. But it is it has a numerological significance to its dedication. It talks about... Uh, an anniversary of a King Nebti, the 400th year, fourth month, fourth day. Yeah, are they really keeping it this 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 down to the fourth day? No, <laughs> they're not. Okay. Hmm. 
Egyptians were not that accurate with their their calendar record keeping. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Again, this is mind blowing. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> so, <laughs> what we have here in in First Kings six one is the four hundred and eightieth year of the Exodus. Now, what we have here is a a multiplication of of um say two. Um, two religiously significant numbers, 40 and 12. Now, 12, we don't even need to explain. Right. Because, you know, 12 tribes, you know, you know that seems seen as a number of perfection, you know, and that's true across the ancient Near East. 40 is an idiom. It's an idiom that's that's used throughout the Bible. It's used in the Moabite stila. And it's, it's used of, say, an indeterminate amount of time. It's just an idiom. Like, for example, when uh, the Moabite Stila talks about the reign of King Omri, it talks about it being 40 years. Okay. King Omri reigned 12 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it is not, it's not a historically, you know, it's not a count. Right. It's an idiom. And idioms are, are used all through the biblical text. So this is just one of those idioms. We also see a parallel here with, say, the um, the uh, um, temple dedication of Tikalti Ninurta the first, where it talks about a 720 years since the foundation of the temple by El Shuma. Well, 720 is 60 times 12. 60 in Assyrian and Mesopotamian cultures is the equivalent of 40 being that indeterminate, and that comes out of the sexagesimal system of mathematics in Mesopotamia. Oof. That's so awesome. what we find is these, these idioms being used in these temple dedication inscriptions. Okay. And First Kings 6.1 is without a doubt a temple dedication inscription. So uh, what I'm getting from you here is they misunderstand the purpose of the number in First Kings. What was it? Six one. In First Kings six one. Yeah, it's the one meaning so, fallacy. So they uh, are are building all of their theories based on this one passage that they're getting wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they're you're saying they need to to uh, construct entirely new systems, move yeah. dates around in yeah. order to. Well, it's oh, even worse oh, than that. It's, it, it, it gets even worse than that. Uh, if it was oh, just no. that, we might be able to, say, negotiate some wiggle room here. It gets worse than that because it doesn't only assign a date. It also assigns a reign, and they assign the reign to Amenhotep II. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is conventional chronology has moved uh, the reign of Amenhotep II to an earlier date much earlier than the 1446 date that they would propose. So they have to actually tinker with the chronology to get that to work. Okay. They have to actually do this, a lot of shenanigans with the chronology. And frankly, Elamarna letter six, you know, prevents that, that date from being moved. So there's, there's no possible way it can, that rain can be moved to the date they want. But the reason they, they, they so want Amenhotep II to be the king of the Exodus is because of a misreading of scripture where it talks about Moses being in the wilderness, you know, after he flees Egypt for 40 years. Right. Okay. 
Now that's fine. Oh no, <laughs> that's fine. Now, now we we all know already. We we should be all thinking. Okay, forty years that should be an idiom right there. Yeah. But let's 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 assume the benefit of that. That's forty. The early data of the Exodus assumes that the previous reign of a king is forty years, the one that preceded the king of the Exodus, and it, it comes down to the burning bush. The um. Yeah, uh, when when Moses is told, you know, you know, the people who wanted you killed uh, are dead. You can go back now, okay? And they say, well, the the burning bush. This is a biographical um, requirement that says that the predecessor of the Exodus Pharaoh had to reign forty years. But the text doesn't actually say that. What the text actually says is that all the men that wanted your life are dead. Men, plural, not man. Mm. Doesn't have to be Pharaoh who had been the last man standing. Okay. Could have been a powerful courtier. Could have been a vizier. It could have been a general. We don't know. Mm. There's nothing necessitating that the predecessor of the Exodus king had to reign 40 years. Fascinating. Okay. I just, uh, Gumby, I want to come to your rescue here. Uh, you know, <laughs> appreciate it, <Theo>. Peter. <laughs> Sorry, Gumby. The, no, 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 it's all good. In the, I'm no, learning. In the, in, the new te- in the New Testament, Peter says that judgment begins in the house of God. So we as evangelicals need to clean our own house. But it's it's just as bad on the other side. We have people like Keith White Lamb and, and others on the left with their biblical minimalism uh, criticizing the Bible. And so you have people on the other side taking these leaps to say the Bible has no evidence, and then you know people outside of our Christian world see that and say, well, here's experts saying that there's no evidence, and then you have the pattern of evidence, David Roll saying, I need to roll 300 years this side so that I don't involve myself with all these dates outside the Bible so I can just ignore all the data. And what I'm trying to do is bring David Falk in here, someone that says we don't have to do either one of these extremes. We yeah. can, as Christians, engage the middle road and we have, go to his channel. He's got tons of videos on this and he's just beginning the tip of the iceberg to unravel all this slowly for you so you can see that you can be a Christian, you can trust your Bible, there is an exodus, mm-hmm. and you don't need to take these rapturous leaps to try to, you know, come up with some grandiose, you know, wild theory. No, because that's what the left is doing. That's what the right's doing. Let's Mm. just come together in the middle and let's see what's available data points that we can actually extrapolate and come to faith. Yeah. It really just comes. Let's rag on the liberal left for a moment Uh because that's always fun too. Oh boy. (laughs) They're They're just as likely to misread their Bibles. Sure. They're just as prone to do this. Like for example, they'll they'll say, you know, we look at the archaeological evidence, and there's no evidence of Israelites living in Egypt worshiping Yahweh. Well, of course. The <laughs> <laughs> Bible never says there were Israelites living in Egypt worshiping Yahweh. Moses brings Yahweh back with him. That's true. Yes. And while they are in Israel, they are not yet Israelites. They are um, Semitic Asiatics, Amorites. And when they come out of e- Egypt, they are a mixed multitude. You have sons of Jacob, but you also have Egyptians, 
Yeah. Uh, Amorites, Libyans, Nubians, uh, Kushites, Medjai. You have this huge, diverse population that gets grafted into the 12 tribes. And it is after the Exodus they become Israelites. Mm. Wow. Now that, By the way, that's my I love that. I love what Theo was talking. He's like, and the other guys are just as bad. He just says Keith, and I see Keith like, <laughs> <laughs> like what did I do? Poor Keith. Poor Keith. Because <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I am Keith the liberal up here, but although I don't have much of an opinion on what <laughs> so talking about Keith stuck so. his head. It's like it's like Theo's like, there he is. <laughs> okay. I have no left. idea. Okay, sorry. Your name's not White Lamb, right? <laughs> uh, I, I do uh, have another question. Um, if, if you if you don't mind answering, Mr. Folk. Yeah, I I, I, I don't want to answer anymore. I'm done. Okay, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, I do want to ask, what is something a little more, a little less uh, on the uh, patterns of evidence side? Mm-hmm. What was, what was the what was the ancient Egyptians' conception of, let's say, demons or evil spirits in their culture? Okay. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. Uh, before, they had they before. had a lot of uh, of of demons and evil spirits in their culture. Now we have to be careful here, because the whole concept of evil in uh, in Egyptian culture is very nuanced. Any god could be both good or evil. Okay. All gods in uh, ancient Egypt had sort of a dualism. They had a good side and a bad side. What, okay? what about a so you didn't have you didn't have a god of good and a god of evil in ancient Egypt. What about gods like Apophis? Even Apophis. Apophis is a demon. He's a demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do have 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 you know in the case of Apophis, he's a he's a sort of a head demon. He's he's a high ranking demon. Okay. But there were demons that served gods that were, you know, uh, uh, ordinary gods like uh, Sekhmet. You know, Sekhmet was the goddess of of healing, but she was also the goddess of sickness and affliction. The way Sekhmet healed you is she inflicted you with a disease and you appealed to her to remove that disease that she gave you in the first place. She had with her a horde of a thousand demons who served her. Wow. Okay. It's like to see. So that's sort yeah. of the role of demons in Egyptian mythology. Is they're they're more lackeys. They're lackeys. They're they're low level gods mm. who who just served a greater god. So would it be more comparable to a demon rather than like our Christian concept of demon? Then yes. With all that, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It'd be more. It'd be more more um, uh, comparable to demon, as you say, than a demon. Okay, so there's there's been crossover between like the uh, a Grecian idea and a uh, and uh, an Egyptian idea behind, between the two. Yeah, except the Egyptians came up with it first. <laughs> so speaking of speaking of uh, crossovers, Apophis, good and evil gods. Here was the question I was wanting to ask, and because I know I've discussed this with Ryan uh, a little bit, and we're mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, bouncing this around. So in my studies elsewhere in uh, Hebrew Bible, and then going even beyond that, we see this big motif of usually a a thunder god, but not always, 
fighting kind of a serpent or a dragon of chaos. Mm -hmm. And we see something very scarily similar to that in Egyptian stuff. And generally outside of this, uh, we usually find that whenever this motif shows up, you generally have like some group of Indo-Europeans showing up in the region ahead of time. So how this, this story of like the set versus Apophis thing, how did that get in Egypt? What's the... Okay, that happens in the first intermediate period. Okay, so we see this happening at the, say, the end of the first intermediate period, very, very early in the Middle Kingdom. So you're looking at around uh, 21, 2200 BC, around there sometimes. Okay, so that's when uh, Apophis starts getting incorporated into, say, the Ray myth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Until then, you didn't have Apophis in the Ray myth. So sometimes, sometime, as I said, in, in, in that sort of period is when we start seeing Apophis showing up. Okay. So, but at that time, too, we do get some migration into Egypt. There is some migration into Egypt at that time. Uh, we find, say, uh, Libyan migrants and um, uh, Levantine migrants come in, but no Indo-Europeans. Indo-Europeans are not there yet. But specifically the opposition between Apophis and Set, because I've heard that Set has some connections with some forms of Baal. Okay, Set is different. Okay, right, Set so, is not Apophis. Yeah. And they're not connected in the Egyptian myth, except yeah. very tangentially in the third enemy period. Yeah, he wasn't saying he was. <laughs> no. Uh, the Baal myth is different. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth is a storm god. He's the Egyptian storm god, and he goes all the way back to pre-dynastic times. Hmm. Okay, so so he's very early. He's very very early. We find some amulets of Seth going way back, and he's sort of the the principal god of of Lower Egypt, hmm. and um, he's part of his mythology. It works even into the unification myth of Egypt. Hmm. So the whole Osiris myth of you know where where Cyrus gets chopped off by Seth. And then, you know, has to copulate to produce Horus and Horus, you know, defeats Seth. All of that is sort of mythologizing of the unification wars of ancient Egypt uh, in the first dynasties. So, you know, um, the connection between Seth and Baal takes, starts to take place in the 11th dynasty when the Semitic peoples bring Baal to the city of Avaris. And when they come to the city of Avaris, they set up a temple of Baal there. Well, the Egyptians just go, hey, this is just Seth. Ball Seth, same thing. Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation. <laughs>